The bell is a gift from the monastery in Korea that has endowed this lecture, so I thought at least we should ring the bell tonight. So I'd like to welcome you to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, those of you many familiar faces here, welcome back. It's great to have you at our events. And anyone who's here for the first time, which I think tonight may be a good number of people first time, uh, welcome to the Center. We have many events in this room reaching back to 1960 of all different religious traditions and comparative work. And one of the more exciting initiatives in recent years is the annual Korean Buddhism lecture, which we're happy to celebrate tonight. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and happy to be your host tonight. The, the format of our events are always uh, friendly and informal. And therefore, if you're inclined to get up to get something to eat or drink during the course of the lecture, uh, please do. And then after the lecture, there'll be time for uh, question and answer. And then the reception can continue after that. So let me say a word of um, welcome first to Professor Don Baker, who is our speaker tonight. We've been looking forward to his visit. And as you know, he will be speaking on from the mountains to the cities, into the cities, the transformation of Buddhism in modern Korea. I think a theme that interests uh, across the boards many of us in the study of religion. He is a professor at the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia. I will say no more about him because we have a very distinguished um, uh, ho professor to introduce him in a few minutes. But I just wanted to give a bit of background on the lecture. So this we call, at least informally, the Unguk Lecture in Korean Buddhism. We have it every year. And we're grateful to the Unguk Foundation, which has made this lecture possible. Uh, the lecture is based on a gift given to us by the venerable Subul Sunim of the Anguk Zen Center in Korea in memory of the venerable Bukchang, who, and, and by that gift, established the Anguk Fund for Korean Buddhism here at Harvard Divinity School. The bell that I ring is also in honor of the venerable Bukchang, so that's why I, I rang it. The fund is used in, in various creative ways to support Korean Buddhist studies, broadly defined, at the Divinity School and each year to make this lecture possible. Uh, we're also uh, delighted to um, host this event in cooperation with the Korea Institute. We have a, uh, now a five or six year friendly relationship and we love to work together. I go occasionally at least to events and then members of the Institute are always welcome over here. So it's a very nice relationship on campus and I'm grateful for their co-sponsorship. So the true honor of the evening is to introduce our speaker, and this honor goes to Sunju Kim, who is a Harvard Yenching Professor of Korean History in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations, and also Director of the Korea Institute. Uh, Dr. Kim began teaching Korean history at Harvard in 2001 after receiving her PhD in Korean history at the University of Washington the previous year. She's widely published, highly published, and I won't go into that detail at the moment, except to say that her most recent book, I think, in 2013, Voice from the North, Resurrecting Regional Identity Through the Life and Work of Yi Shi Hung, 1672 to 1736, published by Stanford University Press. So I will now turn things over to Sunju Kim to do the honors of our introducing our speaker. Thank you. Thank you, um, Frank, for, um, again, I have to reiterate that our um, collaboration for the last several years has been very, very productive. Um, every semester, we co-sponsor an event on Korean religion, and 
uh, it really has given great opportunity for our student and faculty to interact each other uh, with uh, a number of speakers uh, over the years. So I'd like to uh, really thank you and the center for this um, opportunity. And this is a um, great honor for me to be able to introduce my great sambe, <laughs> um, great friend, colleague, and also mentor um, uh, for my uh, career for last uh, 15 to 20 um, years. I forgot when I first met um, Professor Dan Baker, uh, maybe about 20 years ago. Um, I don't know which is um, first, but I think I first read his dissertation, which was filed, I just learned, in um, 1983 or so, uh, which was about the uh, introduction um, of Sohak, or Western learning, um, i.e. Catholicism in Korea in late um, Joseon period. And I was um, struck as a master's student at the time that how he um, began with theoretical issues on religion and, and Christianity and so on before he moves on to specific discussions of the introduction of Sohag and what kind of conflict it had uh, gone through with Confucian um, scholars and practitioners and, and there, that had become actually a model for my dissertation writing, at least uh, in the methodology um, that my uh, uh, dissertation concerned the rebellion of uh, early 19th century. And your dissertation sort of uh, forced me to study theoretical background or framework first before um, engaging in specific sources and so on. So I really I never probably mentioned that to you, but I'd like to thank you for setting up that great um, model. And I think that dissertation was published as a book, Joseon Hugi Yugyo-wa Chonjugyo-e Derib, The Confucian Confrontation with Catholicism in the latter half of the Joseon Dynasty um, in the Korean uh, language. Um, and Professor Dan Baker is a very prolific um, writer. He has. Um, published and co-edited um, a lot of books and source books and so on. One of them, uh, Source Book of Korean Civilization. We all use it for our classes. He was the uh, co-editor of that. Um, and uh, Korean Spirituality, uh, published by University of Hawaii Press in 2008. It's a, a very uh, general but in-depth uh, survey of Korean uh, religions, pre-modern and modern. Um, period. Um, he is the uh, editor of um, Critical Readings on Christianity in Korea, which was published in 2014. Um, and currently, he is the um, co-editor, I, I guess, of, of the journal uh, called Journal of Korean Religion uh, with Professor Kim Sung-ne um, here from Sogang University. And also, um, he is uh, general editor of Cambridge History of Korea. It's a project that he will oversee for many years to come, and we'd like to see the conclusion um, of that. Um, in 2008, he was awarded the Tasan Prize for his research on Tasan Jeongyagyong, um, 18th and 19th century philosopher and writer. Um, and um, I have to say, lastly, that he is one of the key um, senior members of the Korean studies. Um, he has seen the growth of Korean studies for last 20 years. And he's one of the 
um, facilitators, mentors, umuro uh, yangro. Some of you know that word um, openly and confidentially. I know he has provided tremendous amount of um, feedback for. Uh, junior scholars myself, like myself and, and others, and I, I'm sure he will continue to do so. Um, today, he, uh, as you see the title of the talk here, uh, we'll be talking about Buddhism, um, which as he confessed, is <laughs> not uh, one of his expertise, but I think he can um, tell us great things about um, uh, Buddhism as a general specialist of Korean uh, religion. So I really um, greatly look forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Kim. I hardly recognize myself and all the, <laughs> all the praiseworthy language. But it is true. I studied religion in Korea. My focus has been on Christianity and Confucianism. But I've also focused on religious change. I'm an historian, not a religious studies uh, professor. And of course, Buddhism is part of the history of religious change, the dramatic uh, religious change we see in Korea over the course of the 20th century. Uh, those of us who study Korea recognize that a lot of attention has been paid to the dramatic political and economic changes Korea has undergone since the mid-20th century. I went to Korea for the first time in 1971. It was a poor country under military rule. It's now a democratic country under mostly democratic rule. <laughs> Uh, and it, it's an, I'm, I'm very lucky that I was a Korean historian able to watch this incredible transformation. It's been quite amazing. I'm very proud of what the Korean people have done. Um, but today I will focus on, um, on the changes in Buddhism. And I recognize that many of the people here know a lot about Korean history. Others don't. <laughs> so uh, I'll try to provide enough information that those who don't have any background in Korea understand what I'm talking about, but maybe throw enough new information in that those who who know Korean history but not the history of Buddhism in particular will find something interesting, hopefully. So, um, but I'm actually going to begin uh, by just pointing, those who know Korean know this, but Buddhism has had an important role in, in Korea's history for about 1,600 years. Um, and it remains one of the major religions in, in, in South Korea today. And if we have time, I'll get into this very small footprint it has in North Korea today. It's like all, no religion has a large footprint in North Korea today. I've actually had Korean, Canadian, and Korean American students say to me, aren't all Koreans Christians? Because that's what it seems like in North America. <laughs> that's not the way it is in, in, in Korea. Okay? Um, Korean Buddhism, for those who don't know much about Korea, it's Mahayana Buddhism, which means Buddhism like you see in China and Japan, not like the Buddhism you see in Sri Lanka. It means the Buddhism of many deities. Um, it, but it's different from Japan. I just spent five, five months in Japan. It, um, it's Mekong University in Kyoto, where there are about 1,500 Buddhist temples. I don't think any area in Korea, including Seoul, has 1,000. Well, Seoul might now have 1,500. It's possible. It's grown a lot. Um, one thing you notice, one remarkable difference, in Japan, there are clear denominational distinctions. There's a lot of, there, there's pure land, true pure land. Esoteric, true esoteric. <laughs> there's quick enlightenment Zen, there's gradual enlightenment Zen. <laughs> and they're all separate denominations. And, and they have their head temples and their subsidiary temples. And in Korea, in the Choson dynasty, that denominational differentiation was lost. Uh, there's been an attempt to recover it, in, say, mainly in the last quarter of the 20th century, but still, Korea seems to be dominated uh, by Joge Jong. Which portrays itself as meditation oriented, but embraces chanting, doctrinal study, 
I don't think it embraces esoteric that I know of, but otherwise, it basically tries to be all things that are all Buddhist. So you don't have the kind of strong denominational differences that we associate with Japanese uh, Buddhism. Uh, it's, Korean temples are not quite as ornate as Chinese temples. I've, I haven't spent a lot of time in China, but in Taiwan, they're incredibly ornate. Um, but the, the sutras, the sacred writings, of course, are the same as the Chinese and the Japanese read. Uh, the various Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, uh, for those who don't know, Bodhisattvas are almost Buddhas, <laughs> to simplify it. Uh, they're the same ones you see in China and in Japan. Um, and one difference, though, if a traditional Korean temple in the countryside will usually have on the hill behind, off to the side of the main shrine, a, shrine, a main Buddhist shrine, a shrine to a non-Buddhist deity, the mountain god. <laughs> uh, I've seen that in a few older temples in the Seoul area, but they tend to be on hillsides because <laughs> you don't need a mountain god shrine if you're not on a hillside, right? Um, the mountain god is not part of Buddhism traditionally, and I've often had monks tell me, oh, we have that there for the, the, the average believer who thinks there should be a mountain god shrine here. Uh, but the, the monks often are in charge of the rituals to, at the mountain god shrine. It's part of Korean Buddhist tradition. Um, you don't often see statues, by the way. Uh, that's unusual. But, um, but usually you see the painting, and there he is, the old mountain guy. Usually with the, you know, he's always got to have a tiger with him. Okay? So if you see a mountain god shrine behind a temple, you know you're at a Korean temple. Yeah. There's a Buddhist temple in Vancouver, and it does not have a mountain god shrine. But then again, it's on the flatland. <laughs> so no need for it. Okay? Um, I do need to say it's something about uh, Chosun Dynasty. Uh, 500 years, more than that, 518 years, from 1392 to 1910, Korean Buddhists would call it the dark ages of Korean Buddhism. Until the Chosun Dynasty, Korean Buddhism had a favored status. The government supported it because of the belief that the Buddha could help the government. Okay? Well, Chosun Dynasty was a Neo-Confucian dynasty, the only one in Korean history. And um, they... they the usual line is that Chosun Dynasty persecuted the Buddhists. I think that's too strong. I'll talk about that in a minute. But they definitely withdrew uh, state support, yeah. uh, most state support. They no longer had the, um, the, the, the large-scale tax exemptions they enjoyed under previous dynasties. And, uh, uh, so the number of temples and monks given tax exemptions was reduced. That means the temple land, there was not as much tax-free temple land as before. Uh, there weren't as many monks free of uh, taxes as before. What we know, the government limited the number of monks. That limit didn't work. There were a lot more monks, even as late as 19th century Korea, than the official laws would allow. But some of them were paying taxes. <laughs> they, you could be a monk as long as you pay taxes like a layperson. That, that was the rule. Um, monks were soon, early in the Joseon Dynasty, barred from coming within the city walls of Seoul. Now, that wasn't enforced that strictly at first, but soon it was. Now, if you go to Seoul now, you say, wait a minute, there's an old temple within Seoul city limits. Well, it wasn't within the city walls then. It was right outside. There were several outside the walls, but monks were not allowed in their monastic robes to come within the city walls. And monks were officially at the bottom of the social ladder. Uh, Chosun Dynasty had a rigid social hierarchy, uh, rigid in the sense that um, they had the civil service exam like China did, but you pretty much had to be born, I disagree with Han Young-woo on this, you pretty much had to be born into the family uh, of previous exam passers to be able to take the exam. And, and so you had your Confucian scholars on top, uh, 
if you, then you had those whose father were Confucius scholars and mothers were not in between. Then you had commoners. And then way down at the bottom, just a little bit about slaves maybe, and, um, and the Pekchong were the Buddhist monks, theoretically. That was the theoretical order. We know over the course of the dynasty, there were several cases where the government called on monks who, had, uh, who were quite intelligent and the government knew it, asked them in times of national danger, especially when the Japanese were invading, to help organize defense against the Japanese. There are other times when Confucian uh, scholars in the countryside would become friends uh, with educated monks. But in general, monks had very low social status uh, during the uh, Joseon dynasty. We know, for example, that when, when the, the Yangban are the Confucian scholars, when the Yangban would go on a mountain excursion, they felt they could just drop by a temple and ask the temple to house them. And if the, the mountain they wanted to reach the top of was particularly steep, they would ask the monks to carry them up there. And monks had no choice. So it's not persecution, per se, but it's not very nice either. Um, Catholics were persecuted. Um, can you read? My, my dissertation was on um, the, the response to Catholicism before the real persecution really began. Which be, it, the first big heavy persecution began in 1801. About 8,000 Catholics were killed over the course of the 19th century. Uh, we don't have that. You were not killed in Chosun Dynasty for being a Buddhist, usually. There were a couple of cases, but normally you weren't. Chung Hasang, who is Saint Chung Hasang, I don't know if there are Korean Catholic churches in, uh, in the Boston area. Usually the first Korean Catholic church in a town would be named after Father Kim, the first Korean priest. The second one is Hasang, <laughs> Paul Chung Hasang. Um, he, before he was captured and killed in 1839, um, he wrote a letter defending his faith. It didn't do him any good. He was still killed. But he said, among other things, Buddhism has been allowed to spread its poisonous tentacles throughout our land for centuries. There are temples spread throughout the eight provinces, and enormous amounts of resources have been wasted on those temples themselves, as well as on the gold-plated and bronze statues those temples contain. Why are we Catholics denied the tolerance granted to Buddhists? See, So Buddhists weren't treated nice, but Catholics were treated worse, <laughs> I promise you. Uh, uh, they were often tortured, too. So um, Now, what's, it, what's interesting, again, we're often told in the textbooks that Chosun Dynasty was anti-Buddhist. Throughout the 500 years, the royal family continued to subsidize the creation of temples to honor the spirit of deceased members of the royal family. They're called Wandong. They built more of those in the second half of the dynasty, which is supposed to be more Confucian, than they did in the first half. Mm -hmm. We know that some top government officials, even into the 19th century, subsidized the publication of Buddhist text. Top Confucian government officials in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And the government did not interfere with lay associations. I put a ke for those who know Korean. Um, there were um, would believe peasants who believed in Buddhism would get together to pool their resources to support their local temple. And they didn't have to hide it. Now, if Catholics did that, they'd be killed. <laughs> okay? But Buddhist, Buddhist lay people could do that. Okay? Um, and again, there were several temples, as I mentioned earlier, operating not within the walls of Seoul, but right outside. They could do that. Okay? The government didn't try to shut them down. I have to show you a picture of this because this is 18th century. Um, I did 18th century. Professor Kim does 19th century. But <laughs> uh, those who know Korean history know the tragic story of the Coffin King, uh, a man who was crowned prince and the only one in line to be the next king when it was clear that he couldn't be, not be king, so his daddy, the reigning king, killed him uh, or had him kill himself, I guess, you know, put him in a rice chest and let him die of um, locked it and let him die of dehydration. Um, the son of the coffin king became the king. And he, won. he really felt bad about his daddy being killed. He was 10 years old at the time. So he found this uh, kind of broken down old Buddhist temple in south of, uh, of Seoul region, around the city of what is now Suwon, and restored it 
and called it Yongjusa, the, and um, it was, it, 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 the priests there were supposed to pray for the soul of his father. And this is a Confucian monarch, and Chung, King Zhengzhou, who did this, was very Confucian, I promise you, very Confucian. And yet he subsidized this Buddhist temple to pray for his, for his poor father. Um, that temple, by the way, has continued that tradition. They called themselves the Temple of Filial Piety. <laughs> you get the mixing of boundaries, <laughs> blurring of boundaries in, in Korean religious traditions. Um, oops, anyway. Oh, there it is. Let me go. Um, now, I've argued in previous articles, despite the fact that we're these lay associations uh, for supporting temples, in general, the average Korean in pre-modern Korea, average layperson, did not identify with a specific religious tradition. They, th they would go to a Buddhist temple. They would go to a shaman. And Korea still has at least 100,000 practicing shamans, by the way. It shouldn't sound Canadian, shamans. Uh, <laughs> um, and they would do Confucian rituals without any sense of a contradiction at all. Monks were Buddhist. Lay people generally did not call themselves Buddhist. The notion that an individual layperson would wear a religious label was introduced by the Catholic Church, which appeared in Korea in 1784, and then reinforced by the rise of Korea's first indigenous organized religion, called Tongak, when it appeared in 1860, and then by the Protestants, who arrived in 1884. And you'll, I'll show you later how Buddhists picked up on that notion in the 20th century, slowly picked up on it. Um, so um, basically, in pre-modern Korea, if you ask people what their religious affiliation was, most of them would say, what are you talking about? In fact, the, the word religion didn't exist. It was introduced by Japan at the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And um, because of the Confucian nature of the Joseon dynasty, Confucian, Buddhism did not have much of a ritual role. And I mentioned I just came back from Japan where Buddhism survives by providing funerals. Right? Uh, Koreans did not use Buddhism for funerals. Well, first of all, Koreans would not cremate. They've only started cremating in the last 15 years or so. Um, a respectable family would not have a Buddhist funeral. <laughs> they would have a Confucian. They may chant to Amitabha as they're carrying off the corpse, but they still would call it a Confucian funeral. Okay? Um, and you might pray after, the, after that Confucian funeral is over that the person may have a good reincarnation. But one thing I noticed immediately in Japan, every decent temple in Japan has got a graveyard. <laughs> I've never seen those kind of graveyards, except for the steelies for the monks of the past in around a Korean temple. Mm -hmm. And Buddhism wasn't used to mark other important stages of life. You wouldn't have had Buddhist wedding ceremonies. Right? Um, you wouldn't have coming of age ceremonies at a Buddhist temple. Important ceremonies were Confucian. Right? Uh, so that means if Buddhism couldn't play a very important uh, ritual role in the lives of everyday Koreans before the 20th century, it was peripheral to the lives of people except monks and nuns. Um, people went to temples when they felt they needed something. They wouldn't go on a, most people would not go on a regular basis, most lay people. They would go if they felt uh, they, they had an illness in the family, they were facing financial reverses, maybe there was a drought. They'd go to the temple and pray, they'd go to the shaman and pray, <laughs> right? Uh, or the shaman pray for them. Um, and shamanism, by the way, offered an advantage that Buddhism did not. In shamanism, especially the charismatic shamanism we see uh, that is, used to be in northern Korea but is now spread uh, into the south. Uh, shamanism, the shaman can become possessed by the spirit of the deceased allowing you to talk to them, which you can't do in Buddhism. <laughs> so, um, so, so basically Buddhism, uh, it's been forced out of the capital city, forced out of a large uh, scale public role. It's begun to merge a little bit into the folk religion but by the fact it's out there in the villages, but it's, it's not really playing a major role in people's lives, not providing the rituals that they rely on. 
Um, so when did this notion that um, lay people would identify with a particular tradition, call themselves uh, Buddhist or Christians, um, I already mentioned when the Catholics came in. Now, the Catholic Church, don't have time to get into that here, but the Catholic Church emerged before there were missionaries to Korea. That's, an amazing, that's one, one reason I studied that. They brought books in from China that were written in Chinese by Jesuit missionaries in China, and they formed their own Catholic community. Finally, a priest got in there in um, 1791. He was killed. They went another 36 years without a priest until some more priests got in there, and they were killed too. But anyway, uh, it was a rough persecution. Uh, but Catholics called themselves Catholics. Remember, they didn't have any priests at first. So they wore this proudly. They met as a congregation. See, Buddhists didn't do that. Buddhists didn't meet regularly just to be Buddhists in the 19th century, 18th century. But Catholics did. This is a new notion being offered to the Korean people. Okay? And then maybe believers in Chundokyo, the modern successor to Tongak, would disagree, but it's very clear to me that Tongak is a response to the inroads of Western learning and Catholicism. That's why it's called Tonghak, which means Eastern learning. Catholicism is Western learning. And they also formed a distinct religious community composed of ritual specialists and lay practitioners. First time an indigenous Korean religious community had done that. Even today, by the way, Clients of shamans never call themselves shamanist. <laughs> you never hear that. They call themselves Buddhist usually, um, which Buddhists aren't happy about. Uh, now, Japanese love statistics. <laughs> and when, uh, when, when Tosun Dynasty finally fell after 518 years, and um, Japanese took over Korea in 1910, uh, they wanted to have some statistics. They were interested in religious affiliation. So they asked the people of Korea, what is your religious affiliation? They found the population is about 15 million. They found 100,000 lay people who said they were Buddhist. They found about 6,000 um, monks, too, by the way. Um, now, obviously, a lot more than 100,000 Koreans are going to temples regularly to pray. <laughs> but those people who are going to the temple don't call themselves Buddhists. They don't think about that, because they also go to shamans and also do Confucian rituals. Okay. Let's see. Oh, before I get into the change in the 20th century, though, I don't want to back up a bit. Um, we have here, you heard about my co-editor here uh, with our Journal of Korean Religions. We had a special issue on April 2002 on late Chosun Buddhism, <laughs> okay. edited by Bodun Walwar, been once of Leiden, now of Sungingwan University. Um, what we know now is there are a lot of developments going on during the supposed dark ages of uh, Korean Buddhism. Okay. For example, um, the old division between schools focusing on meditation and schools focusing on doctrine was dissolved by the government, not recognized by the government early in the Joseon dynasty. It appears that interest in meditation was fading until some powerful meditation masters arose in the 19th century to revive it. One is uh, Cho Yi, who also is known for reviving or creating the tea ceremony in Korea, and then there's uh, Kyung Ho who goes into the early 20th century. They had to revive a tradition. Now, I mean, there are always meditators, but it, most monks were just busy. Basically, most of them didn't have the kind of tax exemption that would allow them to concentrate on meditation, right? Uh, so they were worried about staying alive. Um, in some cases, feeding families. There was, there was, there was some married monks then, too. They weren't supposed to be, but they were. Um, um, we also find another interesting phenomenon. Remember I said that lay people didn't, have a, a, didn't call themselves Buddhists. There nevertheless were both in Seoul and in the countryside Groups of lay people who would meet, sometimes with the monks, sometimes without, to chant the praises of the Amida Buddha of the Pure Land. That's not meditation. Well, it can lead to meditation, but that's Pure Land Buddhism. And this, we see that we get more evidence of this in the 19th century than we do earlier. 
So there seems to be something, we're going to see signs of it beginning in the 18th century. So if something's going on, people are beginning, lay people are beginning to practice Buddhism in a way they never had before, even though Buddhism is officially um, pushed to the margins uh, by the government of Chosun. We also find something else interesting going on. Buddhist monks are imitating, um, imitating Confucianism and that they're emphasizing genealogies because their genealogies are not biological, they're Dharma genealogies. We begin to see this in the 18th century. You're finding a monk will have in writing, okay, this was my Dharma progenitor and this is my Dharma successor. Once they start doing that, it turns out monks are owning private property separate from temple property. They're allowing their Dharma successor to inherit their property. <laughs> so we're getting actually a stronger institutional base for, for some, some temples uh, by passing on property from one Dharma, Dharma lineage head to, to the successor than you would have seen earlier. So there are changes going on in Buddhism which most scholars have overlooked because they've been focused so much on these supposed dark ages of Korean uh, uh, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, it's very important in Buddhism that you have formal ordination of monks. For nuns, it wasn't that important in Chosun Dynasty. Monks, it was. They had lost the tradition of ordination platforms, special sites for ordination. They restored that in the 19th century. So things are going on in Korean Buddhism that prepared it for the massive transformation it had to undergo when it got into the, uh, the, uh, the 20th century. Now, first day, they had to put up with the Japanese, <laughs> the colonial rule. Um, Japanese were Buddhist. So they, they restored respectability to, to Buddhism. They listed only three legal religions in Japanese-controlled Korea, and they controlled it from 1910 to 1945. One was Buddhism, one was Christianity in both forms, and the third is usually listed as Shinto, but it doesn't mean Shinto, state Shinto, that's not a religion. It means sect Shinto, new religions of Japan that grew out of Shinto. Okay? Everything else was considered pseudo-religion. Uh, they told monks to get more active in, in the secular society and allowed them to get married. Many Koreans thought the Japanese told them to get married. I'm reading a dissertation right now by one of my own students at UBC, she'll defend in May, in which she found documents when the Japanese were saying, look, the monks want to get married. The Korean monks want to be just like the Japanese. Who are we as government officials to tell them which precepts they should follow? So it was really Korean monks that came up with the idea of getting married under Japanese colonial rule. By 1945, 90% of Korean monks were married. 90%. Okay. Um, and there'd always been nuns in Korea, but they weren't really, the government didn't worry about them because a woman becoming a nun didn't cut into tax revenues. <laughs> okay. So I keep track. Uh, we didn't have any real serious education centers for nuns until the colonial period. And then they started opening up um, meditation halls and even doctrine study halls for nuns. Okay. But there's no rush for Koreans to call themselves Buddhist. In 1940, I put up here, the Japanese again, trying to figure out what religions Koreans follow. And by this time, the population is 25 million, the whole peninsula we're talking about. Korea hadn't been divided yet. 200,000 uh, Buddhists in the whole peninsula, Korean Buddhists in the whole peninsula. That's all. I had a population of 25 million. Um, and the number of monks had declined a little bit. Um, and um, unfortunately for the, for the Korean Buddhist community, they've been, I think, unfairly tainted as, as, as being pro-Japanese. Well, obviously some monks enjoyed the fact that they regained respectability under Japanese rule. Okay? Um, but there were some, first of all, there were some outstanding Buddhist uh, anti-Japanese activists, Han Yong-un being one. Um, nevertheless, they were often seen as collaborationists, especially because they, they started acting like Japanese monks, getting married, for example. Um, and also, the Christians were much more active against the Japanese than the Buddhists were, in general. 
on the March 1st movement in 1919, famous independence movement against the Japanese, uh, there was what, one or two Buddhists, like 15 Christians and 15 uh, Tong, uh, Tondokyo, which is the successor Tongok uh, leaders of that movement. So, um, and also, there were 300,000 Japanese Buddhists in Korea, which meant during the colonial period, if people met a Buddhist, it was more likely to be Japanese than Korean, which again made Buddhism seem Japanese, that more Japanese and less Korean. Okay. I do want to mention the birth of one group in the colonial period that came about, the birth of one Buddhism. One Buddhism is a, um, a, a new, there are many new religions in Korea, but it's the, 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 one, the, one, the only Buddhist new religion of the respected new religions, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, by the way, if you want to know more about one Buddhism, I wrote an article about one Buddhism. I put it on academia.edu. It's been downloaded over 1,100 times. I know it's not being used in classes. I think it's one Buddhist downloading it. <laughs> okay. Why else would anybody want to read about one Buddhism? Uh, it's, a, it's a new religion, but it's a Buddhist religion. They're basically teachings of Buddhists, um, uh, but they're new. Um, and it, it, it began in 1916, this is their 100th anniversary, as the Society for the Study of the Buddhist Dharma, but they changed their name to One Buddhism after 1945. Um, what's interesting about One Buddhism is, is doctrines of Buddhists, its temples look like churches. I'll show you a picture later. They have pews. They have altars. They have choirs. Okay? Uh, their services resemble Protestant services. It has rural origins, but it managed to pre present itself very quickly as Buddhism for urban upper class. Mm -hmm. And that's as, and as more suitable, they, they claim, more suitable for modern age than traditional Buddhism. Traditional Buddhists, of course, don't agree. Um, now, what happens when the Japanese went home? Uh, um, as we all know, if you read North Korean propaganda, when Kim Il-sung defeated the Japanese with one million troops, that's the latest claim from North Korea. Nothing about the Tommy bomb hitting Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, when Japan was, first, was, for, was forced to leave, Korea was split. It hadn't been split in a long time. Um, the American occupation in the South was pro-Christian, which didn't help Buddhists. In the North, it was anti-all religion, which didn't help Buddhists. <laughs> okay. um, and so Buddhists in the North were pretty much silenced pretty quickly. Um, independent governments arrived on both sides of the, of the demilitarized zone, is, um, not officially a border, I guess, a demilitarized zone, um, in 1948. Uh, the Buddhists in the South had religious freedom, but they had to deal with a government that was Christian. Here's an example. Christmas was declared a national holiday in 1948. Buddha's birthday became a holiday in 1975. 1951, Christian chaplains in the South Korean military. 1968, the first Buddhist chaplains in the South Korean military. Okay. Okay. The first president of South Korea was a Methodist. Many of his Christians are only like 3% of the population at this point, but most of the cabinet were Christians. Okay. Um, other problems Buddhists faced. Um, Buddhist monks at that time were not seen as well educated. This is despite the fact that Buddhist monks learned to read classical Chinese sutras, <laughs> which is not easy to do. Um, but nevertheless, that was the image, because education meant modern Western education. And Christians tended to have that more than the Buddhists did. Okay. Buddhism was seen as a religion of rural women. It took it a while to get rid of that image. Uh, uneducated rural women. While Buddhism, Christianity was the religion, especially Protestantism at this point, was the religion of the upper class in the urban areas, particularly Seoul. Um, uh, and shamans calling themselves Buddhists didn't help. If you ask a shaman what her religion is, she'll say Buddhism. Buddhists hate that, <laughs> but shamans keep doing it. Okay? Laurel Kendall, the great scholar of Korean shamanism, when she was writing her dissertation, the shaman she was studying would introduce Laurel around by saying, here, here's an American studying our Buddhism. And Laurel would go, oh, no. <laughs> okay? And um, 
Buddhism was seen as, at best, apolitical. It wasn't in the forefront of the struggle against the Japanese in the colonial period, nor was it at the forefront of the struggle later in South Korea for democracy until the 1980s, late 1980s, I would say. That was Christianity doing that. Mm -hmm. okay. They also had internal struggles. Uh, the main problem was, I mentioned earlier, um, that most of the monks in 1945 were married. But the government under this Methodist, Sigmund Rhee, decided that married monks were pro-Japanese collaborators. Therefore, Korean Buddhism had to be run by the small number of celibate monks. It took about a, a decade and a half of struggles, actual struggles. Sometimes the, the government gave the main temple in Seoul to the celibate monks, and the married monks attacked it and tried to take it away from them <laughs> a couple of times. Um, and there's Sigmund Rhee in 1954, a Methodist president of Korea, decrees that married monks have to leave the temples with their families. You know? um, and that's when celibate monks marched on the headquarters and seized it from the married monks. Okay? Um, and it was a battle in 1960 again, monks fighting <laughs> on the grounds of, of Chogesai, which is the, the primary temple of the Chogei order, the largest order in Korea. Um, in 1962, a compromise was attempted, but the compromise was both celibate monks and married monks would be in the same order, but the order to be controlled by celibate monks. The married monks decided they didn't like that. So finally, in 1970, uh, they left and created their own order called Taegojong, which has exactly the same doctrines, exactly the same rituals. The only difference is, besides well, the color of the robes, is that Taegojong monks are married, or can be married, and Jogejong monks are celibate. That's the only difference. Okay. Oh, besides the fact that Jogai got most of the major temples that are tourist draws. Yeah. Um, now here we have a, a, sec, a, a secular government controlled by Christians interfering in Buddhist affairs, deciding which monks are legitimate monks, Sullivan monks, not, uh, not married monks. Um, and then you have, I already mentioned, Christmas becomes a national holiday, and chaplains are Christians, not Buddhist, until 1968. It's no accident that uh, the percentage of Christians in the South Korean military, because military service is still compulsory for men, the percentage of Christians in the military was much higher than the percentage in the overall population. And most of those chaplains are Protestants, by the way. So. I want to show you some slides to help you visualize some of the changes Korea has gone through. Now, this talk is headed from the mountains to the cities. In 1960, only 25% of Koreans lived in communities with more than 50,000 inhabitants. Now, 40% of Koreans live in the Seoul area. Urbanization rate is 88%. Look how it changed very quickly. You see 1960, and then you got all the way to 2005. Okay, so uh, Buddhism has had to cope with this. When I first went to Korea, hard record, remember this, there were 4 million people in Seoul, right? <laughs> now there's 10 million in the city limits, now there's 10 million outside. Uh, so, um, but Buddhism has survived. Has survived. This is an urban temple. Uh, they have survived. So how have they done that? Well, they've adapted to urbanization. Um, oops, there we go. Uh, they, they, what they did, they've adopted some techniques from Christianity. They studied, because Christianity has really grown. Christianity is now, with Catholics, about 11% of the population, and Protestants about 20% or so, and Buddhists at about 23%. So Christianity has done really well after 1960. Um, so the Buddhists have had to imitate the Christians to figure out how to compete with them. Um, and they started opening up proselytizing centers in the cities. And I'm not a, a um, geographer. I, I needed to study cultural geography to figure out why in Gangnam, you know, Gangnam style, if I know Gangnam style, uh, the most modern part of Korea, Christians outnumber Buddhists, I think it's four to one. 
You go to the second largest city in Korea, down in the, in the, in the southeast, Busan, Buddhists outnumber Christians three to one. And same thing in Tegu. I don't know why that is. I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, people say that's more conservative down there. That still doesn't explain it. How come Buddhists were able to adjust to the urban environment of Seoul? Um, I mean, of Pusan, but not so much to Seoul. Um, so, uh, but we do know, starting in the 1980s, new urban Buddhist centers began appearing. Uh, Pulgwangsa is not far from Lotte World, uh, the big shopping mall in Korea. And Pulgwangsa got its reputation by uh, publishing uh, books and pamphlets on Buddhism for an educated elite, or educated urban elite. So it became a Buddhism for educated people. It's not for rural, house, rural uh, village women. Right? Um, and Nungin Sunwon, I, how would you translate that? I mean, their, I'm sure it's not their official translation, but it's the Meditation Center for Able People. <laughs> okay? it's, they claim to have a congregation of 250,000. They're in Kangnam also. And they get involved in teaching classes for Buddhist lay people to learn more about Buddhist doctrines. As one temple has said, we want Buddhists to know they're Buddhist. Just because they're going to a temple, they don't know they're Buddhist. We're going to teach them to what not only that they are Buddhist, but what being a Buddhist means. Okay? And Nungan someone also is involved in social welfare activities and so on. So they, they've, um, um, and you know, one of the first things the Protestants did in Korea was establish hospitals and, um, and, and, and universities, educational institutions which helped Protestantism get a much more modern reputation than the poor Catholics who were still hiding out from persecution. Uh, so Buddhists had, had to do that as well. Um, but what, what's interesting is Buddhism seized upon a niche in the medical market, but uh, you, you will not find a medical school of Western medicine, at a, um, of, of traditional Korean medicine, at a Christian school or at a, until recently not at a state university. Pusan University is open one. Tonguk University, the major Buddhist university in Seoul, is famous for its, they call it, they used to call it Oriental Medicine uh, Hospital. Uh, one Buddhism has an Oriental Medicine Hospital that's quite well known. Uh, so Buddhism has kind of been associated with traditional medicine. Uh, but they have open hospitals. Um, and they have, again, this major university. And there are a couple of other smaller denominations that have also opened. Kungwam uh, Takyo is another Buddhist university in Korea. Weeduk uh, Daekyo is another one. Uh, and of course, Wangwang Buddhism has their own uh, university. Uh, to be a respected religious organization in modern Korea, you have to have a university and run hospitals. <laughs> At the, the, the Protestant model. Um, but the important thing was to create lay Buddhists. In other words, to get people who are already going to temples to see themselves as Buddhist. That required a real change in the way they were thinking. Um, how do you do that? Oh, well, Christians helped. <laughs> As more and more Koreans called themselves Christians, non-Christians said, well, what am I then? I must be Buddhist. <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm Confucian. I sound old-fashioned. I'm not going to say I'm a shamanist. I sound uh, superstitious. <laughs> so I'll call myself a Buddhist. And those who've been to Seoul know it's, just, it's the Republic of Apartments, high-rises everywhere. And Christians will put a sticker on the door of their apartment, of their condo, saying which church they go to. So you walk down the hall, he goes to that church, she goes to that church. Buddha said, wait a minute, I get a sticker too for my temple. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so as the number of self-professed Christians has risen, so has the number of self-professed Buddhists. People need a religious affiliation. That's the modern thing. I'm going to give you some figures on the rise in religious affiliation. I already told you in 1916, 3% of Koreans had a specific religious affiliation. 1944%. 1965, only 12%. This is South Korea now, after 1945. But between 65 and 85, it went from 12% to 42% said they had a religious affiliation. And for 1945, we're dealing with government census figures. 
1995, for the first time in Korean history, half the population, at least South Korea, said they had a specific religious affiliation divided among Catholics, Protestants, and Buddhists. It kind of stagnated after that. It's still around 50% now. It hasn't grown much since 1995. Um, but what a contrast. Oh, I mean, why do most historians ignore this? <laughs> this is pretty significant, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. okay. To give you some more specific numbers, okay. In 1962, Buddhist organizations self-reported that they had 2,300 temples, 5,000 monks, 687,000 lay Buddhists, lay members. Two years earlier, they claimed 6.8 million. I'm not sure. That, that's clearly exa an exaggeration. Self-reported numbers can be dangerous. Uh, 1985 census found 8 million Buddhists, okay, with 9,000 temples and 24,000 clerics. Okay. 2011, the last figures I could get, tw over 26,000 temples, over almost 47,000 clerics. I'm sure it's over 47,000 now, and 11 million Kore South Koreans who will tell you their religion is Buddhism. That's a remarkable transformation. Again, I don't think it's that much of an increase in the percentage of the population going to temples. It's an increase in the percentage of the population going to temples who call themselves Buddhists. That's what the difference. And who introduced that notion of religious affiliation? The Christians. Help you visualize again the numbers. Here we go. Um, these are self-reported numbers in 1960. Um, Buddhists far outnumbering um, the, the, the Protestants and the Catholics. In 1985, you have census figures that are more accurate. And you can see. Uh, what's interesting here is 19, you can see the only group that's growing between 1995 and 2005 are the Catholics. They now slow down too. <laughs> so, uh, Koreans seem to be getting tired of religion. <laughs> no, not, um, help you visualize again the three major religions, how they've changed over time. Um, again, you see the, since 1985. So, um, when we have accurate, every 10 years the Korean government asks people what the religion is. In a very awkward way, they say literally, what religion do you have, which is not normal Korean. <laughs> but anyway, they do that. We haven't got the figures for 2015 yet. I'm, not, I'm curious to see what they show. But uh, you can see, uh, still Buddhism has maintained a respectable presence. Only these three religions, there's a lot of religions in Korea, only these three dominate the religious landscape. Less than 1% of those who say they have a religion other than, or have a religion other than Buddhism um, and, um, and Christ, uh, Catholicism or Protestantism. Only 1% are out of these big three. Help you can visualize again some figures here. You can see the, the nuns go down. <laughs> okay. Um, and these are the figures for here. I, I really want to see the 2015 figures and see what they show. Okay. So the important thing to note here is no one religion is dominant, which means um, there's religious tolerance in Korea because nobody has enough power to boss around the others. <laughs> With no one religion claiming um, even 50% of the religious population. Uh, much less 50% of the total population. So, uh, so again, um, a Gallup poll in 2014 um, found 22% of the Korean population said they were Buddhist. Um, same thing they found in 2005. Um, and that still gave more Buddhists than there are, are Protestants and Catholics. Although Catholics and Protestants combined outnumber Buddhists. So, okay. oh, uh, one, diff one of the marks of modern Korea is a much more public role for women. Christianism didn't allow much of a public role for women. Uh, I already mentioned that nobody, took, nobody even counted the number of nuns in the Joseon dynasty. They didn't count. Um, and no formal training center for them until 1928. Um, but in, in the 1950s, when, when the celibate monks and married monks were fighting, some nuns said, we don't want any part of this. It has nothing to do with us. We're establishing our own monasteries <laughs> okay. um, and education centers. And even a small order for nuns only, very small, Pumenjong, 
Again, their doctrines and rituals are no different from the two bigger orders, but it's just for nuns only. I mean, men can join, but I mean, the leadership, the clerics are all women. Even Japan doesn't have that. Uh, and there's an important Buddhist institution, which is part of Jogei, called Hanmaum Sunwan, One Mind Meditation Center. It was founded by a woman who passed away a couple of years ago, I believe, Taing Sunim. Um, and at first, it was directed towards housewives. She had weekday services at 10 a.m. Why 10 a.m.? The housewife feeds the husband, gets him off to work, feeds the kids, gets him off to school, then goes to the temple, as she did. Mm -hmm. um, and because one Buddhism, already talked about them, there are more one Buddhist female clerics than male clerics. The males, by the way, marry. The women don't. I've had some of the women clerics complain to me about that. <laughs> um, it's not an ironclad rule, but in general, the men marry and the women don't. Um, but one thing interesting and unique about Korea, too, um, there are always plenty of women around the temples. They're working in the kitchen. So, and but they're called bodhisattvas. And even an ordinary middle-aged Korean woman who goes to a temple, like my wife, and I go to the temple with her, they call her bodhisattva, posalim. I say, what about me? <laughs> I'm not a bodhisattva. No, I'm not, I don't count. But she's a, Japanese don't do that. They don't call average lay believers bodhisattvas. I don't think Chinese do that. I don't know why the Koreans do that, but they call them bodhisattvas. Um, one thing, under, under the influence of Christianity, I would argue Christianity provides the paradigm of what a modern religion should look like. Monotheism is therefore more modern than polytheism. So all those statues in Buddhist temples are proof that Buddhism is pre-modern to some people. Um, most large Buddhist temples, including some modern ones, still have many Buddhist and Bodhisattva statues. But there's a growing trend, I've noticed, uh, to putting only one statue in the main hall, and that's of Sakyamuni, the, the founder of Buddhism. And one Buddhism has removed statues entirely. I'll show you an example. Now, here's a typical, this is a typical uh, modern Buddhist temple. Actually, I see only three statues there. Often there are five. Um, and you, it's a pretty, it's, it's a very complicated and ritual paraphernalia. Here's a Han Maum. Remember the, the, the movement founded by the nun? Han Maum temple. Only one statue, Sakyamuni. So you got paintings on the side, but only one statue, Sakyamuni. And that's pretty standard for Han Maum. Unless they've changed since she's passed away. That's the, the ones that I've seen by that way. And then I'll show you one Buddhist temple. <laughs> they used to call them churches when I first encountered them. Yeah. You walk into the foyer. You get the parish bulletin. You sit down, open your hymn book. You sing your one Buddhist hymns. <laughs> okay. They've got a pulpit there for the sermon. And they have a circle instead of any statues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned that... Um, um, one mark of modernity for Korean religion is in getting involved in, in the fate of the nation, in other words, politics. That's where the Protestants, again, came out ahead of the Catholics until the last few decades. Catholics, again, were too busy hiding for persecution. Um, Buddhism also was too caught up in its internal struggles after 1945 to, to deciding who was going to be, you know, were, were married monks, legitimate monks, and so on, that kind of struggle, to pay much attention to uh, domestic politics, and Christians took the lead. When the democratization movement began in the 1970s, and that's when I first went to Korea in 1971, um, there were a few Buddhists involved, but it was primarily university students and Christians. I still remember in 1974, I think it was, Park Chung-hee had declared um, that he was president for life, uh, Korean-style democracy. And there suddenly posters appeared on, uh, all over town uh, saying, watch out for these dangerous pro-North Korean subversives. They're members of the Student Christian Federation. They had planned, meeting under the cover of Bible study, they were Christians, 
uh, to have nationwide nonviolent uprising demanding democratization, and the government found out about it just a few days before. Uh, this is not on that subject. But I still remember what one guy said when he was condemned to death, I believe, and he wasn't executed, he later became a politician. But as he was condemned to death, he stood before the court and bowed and said, for those who know Korean, Young Gwang Sosu Mida, I am honored to be condemned to death by a court such as this. <laughs> Each other <laughs> did that. And Kim Ji, Kim Ji Ha followed him doing the same thing. Um, but uh, things changed in 1980s. Um, I don't have time to get into how it changed, but just point out there was a military coup. Park Chung-hee, the father of the current president, was president of Korea for about 18 years. And he was assassinated by the head of his own secret police in 1979. We thought we were going to get democracy. Um, it didn't happen. There was a military coup on May 18, 1980. I was unfortunate, fortunate as an historian, unfortunate as an individual to witness the bloody aftermath of the slaughter of people fighting for democracy in the fifth largest city in the country called Gwangju. Um, then, for some reason, Chun claimed that he was really out to clean up the nation. He decided Buddhism was corrupt. Now, again, this is, uh, this, this is like Sigmund Rhee telling the Buddhist, you married monks aren't real monks. You know, what, what does a Methodist president have, have the right to do that? Um, Chun Duhuan had his troops attack several Buddhist temples. They even tortured one abbot to death. And you couldn't talk about this. I didn't know about this at the time. Of course, I stayed away from Korea after the massacre in Gwangju, but I, I, mean, I was following events. I didn't know about this. Um, this started some Korean Buddhists. There was already a movement among some Korean younger monks to think about politics. This started them thinking, we have to change the government. You know? um, and it, it was just two years ago. It was the first time I saw signs at the main temple in Seoul about this October 27, 1980 attack. I'd never seen any signs about that before. They were having a symposium about it. Uh, this gave rise to what was called Min... Oops, I spelled it wrong. My, my, my spelling checker got to me. Minjung Buddhism. <laughs> I forgot to check on the spelling. I hate it when it does that. Why does Microsoft think it knows us better than we do? <laughs> uh, but Minjung Buddhism I took from Christianity. Minjung means the suffering masses. That can mean suffering peasants, suffering workers. By the way, it can also mean low-paid professors. But uh, <laughs> the, the suffering people are untenured faculty, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so you begin to get Minjung Buddhism as well. I can still remember a monk coming to me after the Gwangju massacre, when I came out of Gwangju, uh, saying, we Buddhists have to find a religious response to an evil such as this. Because the Christians had their response already. That Minjung, under Minjung Buddhism, the suffering is somehow more sacred. It's like Jesus on the cross is sanctified. So well, the suffering people of Gwangju were sanctified by their suffering. Um, so uh, I've watched Korean democratization very closely since 1971. The first time I saw Buddhist monks on the front lines was 1987. Um, that was quite remarkable. Buddhist nuns on the front lines. And we didn't know what was going to happen. There was still a military government based, well, it was officially civilian, but it was still Chun Duhuan, the butcher of Kwangju. And we didn't know if he was going to use military force again. But the crowds in Seoul, it was Christians, it was students, and it was Buddhist monks and nuns demanding democracy. And that began Korea's progress towards democracy, which being a person from Kwangju, I don't think was fully achieved until Kim Dae-jung was elected president. But uh, <laughs> um, just last year, Mm -hmm. uh, 2015, uh, there were large demonstrations in Seoul against uh, a number of things, against the government's attempt to revise high school textbooks to put the father of the current president in a better light, uh, and also to revise labor laws to make it easier to fire workers. So massive demonstrations, and the government decided the man who organized those demonstrations, the labor union leader, was a subversive. They were going to charge him with subversion, which is a pretty serious charge in South Korea. He t before that, People, political activists would often take refuge in the Catholic cathedral, and so whether they were Catholic or not was irrelevant. 
They would take refuge in the Catholic cathedral. He took refuge in the, large, in the main Buddhist temple. Mm -hmm. And so he had 2,000 police surrounding the temple, demanding that he give up or they would attack the temple. Finally, he was negotiated. He turned himself in. But that's the first time I've seen the temple become a refuge for a political dissident. Now, there's no legal clause in the Korean laws that says temples are, are refuges, but it's just, uh, they, they, that's just kind of a custom. Uh, here's another way that Koreans have tried to respond to politics. Um, Give themselves a more nation-loving image. If you go to Tegu, outside of Tegu, there's Palgongsan, um, which has at the foot, on the top of it, there's a wonderful uh, statue about 800 meters up. I had to hike to it in the old days. Now you can take, uh, you can drive practically there. They built a highway up there. But at the foot of the mountain, there's this, can you see there's people there? It's a huge statue. By the way, to get to the statue, you've got to cross, you've got to climb up 108 steps. And then you understand the 108 causes of the human suffering, <laughs> if you're an old guy like me with bad knees. Uh, but they tell you this, this is the Buddha of medicine, of healing. But it's the healing what? The division of the country. This was erected in the 1990s by the Buddhist. Mm -hmm. They claim it's the largest healing Buddhist statue in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's been other Buddhist activism as well. Uh, they do occasionally go up to North Korea where they meet with the official North Korean Buddhist organization. Uh, but they've taken up issues of the environment. Um, there was the famous uh, monk who, who crawled, uh, crawled around Korea to protest the previous government's plan to uh, supposedly restore rivers to their old transportation functions, but they didn't have. Uh, and, and it was destroying a lot of Buddhist temple land in the process. But there also there's a group called Jungto Society, Pure Land Society, and another group called Indra's Net, which are basically Buddhist NGOs. Uh, the leaders are monks, but most of their members are lay people. And they've been very active in both in combating poverty and in, um, in working on the environment. So they've given Buddhism now a new image, that of being actively involved in issues that affect everyone, not just Buddhist. Um, and again, they have their roots in the Minjung Buddhism, although nobody uses that term anymore, neither the Christians nor the Buddhists. Mm -hmm. um, now, I mentioned there's a lot of Protestant influence on Buddhism. Unfortunately, one example of that is the fragmentation of Korean Buddhism. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I've already mentioned the major division between uh, Joge and Tego, between Sullivan and married uh, clerics. Um, within Joge, you occasionally see battles, fist fights at the main temple, <laughs> which doesn't help Buddhist image at all. Fights over the leadership of the order when younger monks say, we need reform. And the older monks say, what do you guys know? You're too young. Um, and, of course, the TV cameras are there because it's right in the middle of Seoul. So, um, but uh, Joge likes you to think they are the only uh, Buddhist, um, real authentic Korean Buddhist organization. Do I need my bag? And, let me see. I, have, I wanted to show something. Where did I find my bag? Over here. Oh. oh, it says Georgetown on it. Uh, did I leave it in here? Would it be in my room? I wonder. Uh, I was going to talk about something, and that's okay. Um, I, I thought I, I, I thought I, I said didn't bring I'll it here. Check, I'll go check my room. I thought I brought it. Um, what does it look like? It's got Georgetown on it. It's a okay. blue bag with Georgetown on it. Um, um, oh, is that it there? I think I, we got it. Is that it? Yeah, we got it. Sorry. Uh, I want to show some things here. Got to have some uh, visual aids. Uh, before we get into that, uh, according to government records, there are actually 137 different Buddhist denominations registered with the government which is more than 117 Protestant denominations registered with the government. Okay. Most of them you never hear of, um, but they exist. And you'll see them on Buddhist birthday celebrations in Seoul. Um, 
What is surprising to many people, Joge is, again, that's the image that foreigners know when you want to go to Korea and learn about Korean Buddhism, you're told Joge is it. Taego has more temples. They're smaller, but they have more temples. I'll give you the figures in a minute. Um, let's see, okay. Here we go. Joge has 2,800 temples or so and about 12,000 clerics. Um, Taego has 3,000, almost 3,300. Okay. But fewer clerics because they don't, they don't have monasteries, right? And they're too esoteric based on the, how do you describe esoteric for those who don't know Buddhism? Ritual techniques that allow you to go beyond words to reach ultimate enlightenment. Uh, Tingak and Chunde, uh, Chante. Uh, Tingak has 123 temples, that's all. And it says only 312 clerics, but they claim to have a million followers and they have their own university. So does Chante. Has Kungang University, 250 temples, but they have their own university. Uh, because one, William claims, one Buddhism claims a million followers, although the census only claimed, found 130,000, but there are 2,000 clerics and 550 worship halls, um, and their own university and hospitals. So there's a lot more diversity in Korean Buddhism than you would think. Um, and again, there's modern temples in Seoul. I already mentioned Nungan Sunwon and Pulgwangsa earlier. They have congregations. Many of these large temples in Seoul are comparable to the large Christian churches, 50,000 to 200,000 or so in their congregation. And like Christian churches, they offer daycare, they offer kindergarten, adult education called Buddhist colleges. And I'm, somebody's told me weddings. I can't imagine weddings. They have to do, I've never seen that in a Buddhist uh, temple. But, um, and they offer meditation training for busy lay people. Okay. Here's an example. <laughs> Something you didn't used to see. Okay. Okay, so, um, in, um, in modern Korean temples, you can walk into the main hall, not in a traditional temple, but in a modern temple, a new one, you will find a piano in the main worship hall. What's that doing there? because they have Buddhist hymns. I was telling someone the first time I encountered that, I was wandering around Myeongdong, used to be a trendy area in Seoul back in the old days, uh, and I heard what sounded like Christmas hymns, it was Christmas time, it sounded like Christmas hymns but the words didn't sound right. I turned a corner, it was a bunch of monks. <laughs> they put Buddhist ideas to Christian tunes. Um, and this is what I need in my, my bag. Um, you, right on the subways in Seoul, you'll see Christians reading their Bible. What if you're a Buddhist? you got to have a Buddhist Bible. <laughs> what does it have? It has summaries of the sutras. It has instructions on how to bow when you go to a temple. <laughs> uh, it has precepts for lay people, explained easily, and even explanation of the different um, ritual instruments you'll see. And here are the hymns in the back. Looks like a Bible. Found the same way. Yeah. Um, even Confucians tried to do this, but it didn't work. <laughs> Poor Confucians. Um, and modern temples have Sunday school. They call it Dharma school. And Sunday morning services, 10 o'clock in the morning, the Buddhist temple is open for their services. Mm -hmm. now, when I first started going to Buddhist temples, um, I, I, I introduced myself beforehand to the monk. And then he would announce to the congregation, here's Professor Baker from Columbia University. I'm British Columbia. I didn't bother to correct him. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know UBC back then. Uh, uh, and then you sometimes find this. Uh, there's a very famous temple, Bongunsa, which is, uh, I know, it's, it's, by the, it's, behind, it's above the World Trade Center in Gangnam. And this is on Christmas season. They put the Christmas trees in right in front of the uh, demons, keeping the, the evil spirits away from the, the, the sanctuary. Isn't that amazing? You wouldn't find that in Japan or China, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. I had to show that one. Um, and of course, there's overseas outreach. One of the things you want to do to be respectable is have foreign believers. That doesn't mean foreign Buddhists, it means foreign believers in Korean Buddhism. Okay? 
Uh, there's a temple in Seoul that is made, designed for foreigners. In fact, the most famous Western Buddhist in Korea, although he's left now, graduated from Harvard. He was an Italian Roman Catholic from Boston. <laughs> he wrote a book called From Harvard to Hwagesa, <laughs> which became a bestseller. It's only in Korean, unfortunately. He finally, he got so, he asked, he got so tired of signing copies of his book, he asked Joge to please assign him to a small rural parish. People found him. <laughs> so I'm told he's somewhere in the United States now ministering to Korean Buddhists. Uh, yeah. um, and Korean Buddhist uh, artists have been dispatching missionaries overseas, mostly Joge. Daigo's doing a little bit. Uh, most of the time, these missionaries actually minister to local Korean populations. I've been to the Buddhist temple in Vancouver many times, and only other people I see there are Koreans. You know? In fact, one time I tried to talk to the abbot, and he couldn't speak. I, I speak Korean, fortunately, because he couldn't speak English. Um, they have about 1,000 members of the congregation, but they're all Koreans. So, um. And then there's the temple stay program. Uh, this is some more visual aids here. Uh, <laughs> In 2002, Korea hosted the World Cup. And they thought, why don't we expose foreigners to Korean culture? So we'll invite them to spend a couple of nights in a Buddhist temple called Temple Stay Program. These are Joge temples. Um, it worked so well, they kept it going. Now more Koreans do this than Westerners. And by the way, when they ask the people who do this, what is your religion, most of them say, well, not most, but a plurality say Catholic more than Buddhist. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, and they have a, a little magazine. They, the, they're trying to internationalize. The title is in English. Almost nothing else in the magazine is in English. <laughs> uh, it starts off by every issue is like this with beautiful scenes of Korean nature. What does that have to do with Buddhism? Uh, then it gets into, well, here's some implements that are used in Buddhism. Um, this one is on metal instruments. Then it gets into uh, the kind of vegetarian cuisine you get in temples. And occasionally some recipes. And occasionally in the back, there'll be instructions about what to do when you go to a temple. Um, and so this has become a way. They, they, and different temples advertise different things that you get from the temple stay. One will say, you'll be able to breathe the refreshing mountain air and just feel much more relaxed. Another will say, you'll learn how to cook Buddhist cuisine. Uh, another will say, we'll teach you the tea ceremony. You know, um, In fact, this tells you all the different specialties of the various temples uh, in this little journal. So um, it, it's very relaxing, except if you like to sleep late, don't even think about it. <laughs> they get you up at 3 in the morning. <laughs> That's when they start their day. Uh, there's one, by the way, not far from Kyungju, devoted to Buddhist martial arts, too, if you want to do that. Uh, so uh, um, There's still a long way to go um, uh, for Buddhism in Korea. Um, now, again, about 22% of the Korean population say they're Buddhist. But when Gallup goes deeper than the census, Gallup says, asks Koreans, who are, said they have a religion, uh, if you went to a religious service once a week. 80% of Protestants say yes. They go more than once a week. They go almost every day. 60% uh, of Catholics, although they're all supposed to, right? <laughs> uh, Buddhists, 6% said yes. Okay? And then how about do you read your sacred text? 56% right? of Protestants said they regularly read the Bible at least once a week. 40% of Catholics said they regularly read the Bible. 11% of Buddhists... Uh, said they read their scriptures that often. In fact, about half the Buddhists said they never read the scriptures. Okay? And if you are a Protestant in Korea, you give 10% of your income to your church. You tithe. 68% of Protestants said they do that, as did 36% of Catholics. We're probably higher than in North America. 58% <laughs> um, of Buddhists said they donate to their temple more than, no more than once or twice a year. 
only 12% donated once a month or more. So uh, what you have here are Koreans who call themselves Buddhists, but the dedicated religious are still the Christians. The, the Buddhists, most Buddhists, it's going to change you, but most Buddhists do not put the same amount of time or money into their chosen religion as uh, Christians do. Um, I don't want to skip, I want to finish up with North Korea just very quickly. Um, the, the successor to Tonghak, Tondokyo is the largest religion allowed in North Korea. An official federation claims that's 15,000 members. Um, there are supposed to be 10,000 Protestants. Um, Pyongyang, by the way, was called the Jerusalem of Asia in 1945. Two-thirds of Protestants and about 50% of Catholics in the whole peninsula were in what is now northern Korea in 1945. Uh, there are about 10,000 Buddhists now, uh, supposedly, and about 3,000 Catholics, but no priests. Mm -hmm. And this is what you see if you go to a Buddhist temple in North Korea. You'll see armed troops yeah. to protect the temple. That's what they tell you. So um, I, I couldn't leave without talking a little bit about North Korea. But, uh, so that's my presentation. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. Uh, so educational, so clear, I learned so much. And also in good time, we have time left for discussion. I was remiss at the beginning. I'd like to welcome a special group that's here today, the White Mountain School from Vermont with Renee Blacken, the teacher, are on an interfaith journey this week. And it's great to have you all here with us today. So welcome to you all. But again, this is an informal setting. Uh, the floor is open, and I'll allow you to field your own questions. Yeah, sure. Let me go first. Um, so, um, when you talk about Joseon Dynasty around the 19th century, you mentioned there's some evidence of revival right. of Buddhism in the 19th right, century. Right, there is, yeah. Why? That's a very good question. It could be related to the same reason Christianity takes off at the end of the 18th century. I'm not a demographer, as you know, but it looks like the Korean population was had reached a peak that it could support in a normal year with the agricultural technolo technology available to it, the population stopped growing, and also the population had reached a density where epidemics were more frequent. So suddenly, poverty, starvation, death were much more a pressing concern. And what do people do when they face it? They turn to religion. Yeah. I, thought, I, I, re I really can't think of any other reason. This is before the influence of Japanese Buddhism, obviously. So nothing to do with external influence. Um, and I don't think Christianity is big enough to be influencing what's going on in most villages in Korea at that time. So I think it's just the conditions in the 19th century were just getting more precarious for the average person. Yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. And uh, what uh, have happened in South Korea mm. are now happening in China. So mm, such yeah. a structure will appear in China. Yeah. And uh, my question is that uh, in traditional, in ancient uh, society, Buddhism was uh, religious individualism. Uh, Buddhist, Buddhists did not enter public life. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, but now to compete with Christianity, right. the Buddhism has to reform itself. Right. To be to enter public life. Right. To do the charity work right. and even to fight for the civil rights. Right. Yeah. And to gain the support from the public. Yep. So, uh, do you think that this? Uh, this has been a chain to the Buddhism in South Korea? Oh, yeah. 
And the change began, people, some Korean Buddhists began proposing that change during the colonial period. Han Yong-un, one of the few Buddhist monks as a leader of the anti-Japanese movement, also wrote an important treatise called on the reformation of Korean Buddhism. He said, we have to get out, stop hiding in the mountains. We have to get into the lives of the people in the cities and affect their lives. We need to be educated. We need to, uh, we need to be involved in social issues. Uh, it took a long time for his fellow monks to pick up on that. But that's clearly what's happened. Uh, with this. And again, it really accelerated after 1980 when the army atta attacked all those Buddhist temples in South Korea. That showed Buddhist monks they could not simply sit on the sidelines and expect to be safe. They had to be involved in the fight for democracy as well. Last quarter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple question. Um, really nicely done. I really, really uh, learned a lot. Um, I was. I know you're not a demographer, but I'm. I'm really struck by the the geographical distribution that yeah. you that yeah. you pointed out there. Yeah. In part because you just mentioned the uh, religious persecution of, yeah. of the Buddhists by the military government, and that's the center. I mean, Chunduhuan's area, the the TK group. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Tegu. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I find that really uh, interesting and yeah. puzzling. And if you have any more information about that, mm. I'd be interested in, in hearing it. I think it's really worth exploring this yeah. geographical dimension yeah. to it. The other is the age factor demographically. Mm. Uh, because, yes. um, you know, if Buddhism is going to continue to grow, and I, yeah. I presume the, the non-celibate part of Buddhism is more attractive maybe to younger people than the, <laughs> the, the celibate. But, I mean, there has to be a, a reaching out to younger, younger people, right. younger generations. And I just wondered, you know, what you've discovered about that, yeah. uh, the techniques of, of recruitment yeah. or, or you know, the attractions, for example. Of the, well, the first question, I'm hoping I, I, I'm told I'm too close to retirement to take a graduate student, otherwise I try to encourage somebody to come and study the geographic <laughs> reason for the difference between the Seoul area being so Christian and the Southeast being not. Uh, but as far as reaching out to young people, the Gallup poll shows, by the way, that the decrease in interest in religion is much stronger among the younger generation, those below 30 years of age. And it's across the board, not just among Buddhists, but also Catholics and Protestants as well. I'm not sure why. Gallup doesn't say, why aren't you interested anymore? Uh, but, and maybe they'll change as they get older, which often happens. But there does seem to be um, a decrease in interest. And the response is, of course, to organize groups on campuses. You'll see signs right on the campuses, student Buddhist group. It doesn't make a difference if it's a Christian university or not. There'll be signs saying student Buddhist group, student Christian groups, the new religion do the same thing. So they're trying to attract people on the university campuses. Uh, but apparently, uh, Koreans, according to a recent study done by Joe Gang, Koreans are increasingly distrustful of large religious organizations. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Gallup found that two-thirds of Koreans said they prefer to be able to pursue their own spirituality privately rather than within a religious structure. Has, has, just to follow up, has this resulted in a growth of sort of non-mainstream religions apart from the three big ones? Not at all. The percentage is very small, you said, yeah. right? They shrunk. Actually, they shrunk. Yeah. Yeah. Except for one Buddhism, they shrunk. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Korean like brand names, right? And the brand names are Buddhism, Catholicism, and Protestantism, right? And a little bit of one Buddhism, but Taisen Chinliwei, Daejeonggyo, those things, they don't, they don't get your respectability. So why, why bother to join them? Uh, so no, their numbers are dropping. Uh, Gallup only found, interviewed 1,500 people, they found four people who said they had a religion and it was not Buddhism, um, one Buddhism, Christianity, or, or one more form or the other. Only four out of 1,500. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, um, so I enjoyed your uh, 
talk, and uh, I'd like to share my observation with you a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in Korea. I spent a few years, uh, late 80s and mm -hmm. the 90s, okay. early 90s. And uh, when I just got there, what happened to Buddhists was fighting in public, oh, yeah. throwing <laughs> stones at each other, yeah. which was uh, hardly from you know, getting involved in secular politics yeah. or you know, socially minded yeah. at all. Yeah. But at the same time, what I was so moved by what happened in the Catholic Church at that time, mm. uh, when this uh, 1980s democratization thing came, yeah. Catholic Church the, stood out in comparison with the Protestants. By right? then, yeah. Protestants, yeah. the elderly, uh, you know, religious leader, Hang Yang Yeah. Supported the military government uh, yeah. and also very to their chagrin and uh, you know disgrace that, that happened. Mm. But at that time, the cardinal was a king. Cardinal Kim, yes. He was very socially minded, and yes. very astute politically as well. Yeah. So when this labor dispute happened, and the labor, you know, that the, these workers had to take a refuge and went into the Catholic Church sometime in uh, Seoul. The cathedral, yes. And he covered and stood out and the yep. military government couldn't do anything. Right. With that, what happened on Catholic Church, I thought very interesting was this young priest, you know, embraced rather blatantly, according to American standard, the liberation theology. Mm. And they moved into society to do some social yes. justice, which was wonderful because uh, mm. comparing with the Protestant church, Catholic church tend to be a bit more inner-directed, right. you see. But the Protestant, when they came, university, high schools mm. for girls and boys, and they all, you know, the, the, the fostered the leadership in Korea. I mean, mm. you know, even about the independent movement was all headed with even women's group out of a church yeah. and the men's as well. But Catholic Church was a bit dormant as you said because of such a hard persecution right. from beginning. Yeah. But by that time, in the 1980s, mm. here that you came to Catholic Church, all reformation. But when I thought about that, later on, and they had also 1960s, the Second Council of Catholic Church, yeah. you know, John, yeah. John uh, 20, yeah, 27 yeah. years, yeah. that emerged with that, gave more force to Korean yeah. priests and the you know, Catholic Church, yeah. so that all seemed to be worked together. Mm. But my one uh, question... We should allow other questions. Uh, my question, you didn't mention about it, for Buddhist side, um, as I read uh, just a little history, I'm really poor about Just a history. question, please. Okay. Yes, it was uh, this uh, high Buddhist monks that involved uh, politics uh, very indirectly. I don't know if it's a Korea or Ijo dynasty. Yeah. They even was a counselor to king. In the early dynasties, yes, they were, yeah. And like the, the chose them as uh, well, yeah. What, you know, the period does it come? They were very, very powerful, really. Probably the height of their power was the Korea dynasty, which would be from the 11th, uh, 11th century, uh, I mean 10th century through 1392. Um, but again, they weren't—they didn't dominate the government, but the government used Buddhism as a way to reinforce its claims to power, let's put it that way. Uh, and again, the new government of Joseon dynasty being Neo-Confucian didn't feel that need. And so it, um, it withdrew them from the centers of power, but they never dominated the government in any we're used to enjoying government patronage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
thank you so much for the great uh, talk. So my question is about um, the Buddhist effort to kind of model itself according to the Christian church, right. so especially um, Protestantism. Um, how conscious is that effort? And uh, is there maybe a response against, a reaction against it amongst, I guess, uh, purist uh, Buddhists? Um, I'm not sure. I think it is uh, conscious. I think they, they recognized the success of Christianity and realized they had, to, they had to get out of the mountains into the cities and proselytize like the Christians were doing. But there is a contradiction there. Uh, after all, Joge defines itself primarily as a meditative order. And you meditate better in the mountains. Let's face it, Seoul's not a good place for meditation. <laughs> um, so some monks do want to still stay in the mountains and meditate right? and, and pursue their own enlightenment. Uh, and also, the new definition of religion in of Christianity emphasizes what you believe, your doctrines, your creed. Zen Buddhism is supposed to be above doctrines, right? You go beyond doctrines. Um, so how do you reconcile, how do you create a modern form of Buddhism according to the important definition of, of, of a modern religion based on the denial of the importance of doctrines? So <clears throat> here's that contradiction there. <clears throat> but like any large organization, there's going to be different viewpoints. There are some monks who, I've met the, the chief abbot at Million, someone, he enjoys what he's doing. He really enjoys uh, getting what he says, uh, having more Buddhists understand what it means to be a Buddhist. He says that's better than staying in the mountains. Other prefer to draw from the cities and go back to the peace and quiet of the mountain temples and not even be part of the temple state program. <laughs> the other question. Um, most of these people, like, I mean, why, the, why only go to the temple when you need something? Huh. I feel like that question becomes like annoying. Like, I kept asking myself that question because um, mm. uh, I feel like as a religion, you should like always want to. Like, uh, That's the Judeo Christian Islamic <laughs> concept of religion. Yeah. It's not the concept you have in South Asia, <laughs> it's not the concept you have in traditional East Asia. It's just, I say when Taoism in China, you go to the gods when you need something, but the gods don't need you, need you to come to them regularly. <laughs> By the way, one way, Buddha, one way Buddhism tried to respond to the appeal of Christianity, Korean Christianity is often called Kibok Shinan, which means religion for practical benefits. I have seen signs on Buddhist temples saying if you donate enough, the monk will pray for a thousand days that your child get to the Seoul National University. <laughs> Beginning, uh, that was quite striking how you showed uh, traditional Korean beliefs interacting with Buddhism with the example of the mountain shrines. Um, another Korean uh, folk I think that really stands out historically is uh, geomancy, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, wondering uh, what's the relationship between uh, Buddhism and uh, geomancy. Uh, uh, do you folks practice as geomancers? Yeah. Is there, in fact, a uh, place of temples? Is that the placement of temples? Uh, geomancy is often treated as though it's Confucian or Taoist, but it, it's a core part of Buddhism. It was a, a Buddhist monk who determined the placement Dynasty on geomantic principles. And there's one temple called Shisangsa uh, that uh, supposedly it blocks the energy of the Korean Peninsula from flowing out to Japan. When that temple is inoperative, Japan attacks. There was a fire at the temple in the 1580s, the Japanese attacked in the 1590s. Uh, there was another fire at the temple in the um, 1880s. What happened? The Japanese came in. Uh, and when I was in Korea in the 1990s, there was an attempt to build a highway through the temple. People said, oh, no! <laughs> we can't let that happen. So the government actually moved the highway around. So, because um, that, that temple had an iron statue, a ninth century iron statue of the Buddha, who supposedly was weeping of, of fear that the temple was going to be destroyed. I went to the temple, I didn't see any tears. But anyway, uh, that temple was necessary geomantically to preserve the energy that allowed Korea to flourish. So yes, temples are supposed to be chosen on the basis of geomantic principles. 
Uh, thank you so much, Professor, for a great talk. And uh, I have so many questions, but I'll, I'll keep them. I'll keep them short. Uh, I suppose my primary one is, uh, you know, seeing Cholgijong mm. get all the spoils and yep. uh, get the great temples yep. and, and get to narrate its history in the way that right. it wants. Um, has Taebojong had any responses in terms of conceiving of its own history in a different way or a sophisticated way mm. for producing maybe temple state type programs? I can imagine a counter argument there is nobody wants to go to temple state with a bunch of married monks. <laughs> uh, you don't but, see the family that way, they're temples. Yeah, so that's, that's my major question there. I, I had a small question. Um, to your point about refuge, um, temples as, as places of refuge, uh, and famously, Chong Duhuan took refuge in Ekdamsa. Mm -hmm. They um, weren't. They, they were forced to take him. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, but I wondered, like, what the image. I, I wasn't um, around Korea at the time, so yeah. I wonder what what image was left with Korea at the end of the 1980s. You know, as Chong Duhuan steps down and Ekdamsa uh, takes takes this dictator. Well, on that question, I don't think the average Korean thought that Ekdamsa did so voluntarily. That was not a, a, a stain on the Buddhist image. It was that Chun Duan needed to get out of the public light as fast as possible. And they, he acted like he was doing penance in the temple. They made him very nice little separate quarters there with air conditioning and the whole bit. As far as what Tego Jong has tried to do, very interesting. Um, they have tried to make themselves the repositories of traditional Korean performing arts like dances and music and painting. So you go to a Choge temple to see Sullivan Monk perform the rituals. You come to Tego temples to learn about traditional arts and the few Traditional temples they still control are places where they really highlight their dances and their music and their paintings. That's what they try to do. Um, and they also say, by the way, we don't fight. <laughs> These are all the guys that are fighting all the time on television. We don't do it. They told me that a couple times. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I learned so much. This is really, really interesting. From some of the research that I've seen on the a mega templization of Buddhism mm. and yes. Seoul, particularly where they are overtly trying to model their organization structures on mega churches and all these kinds of things. Yeah. They've run into a snag, so I've heard, and I wonder if you can tell about it, that, that one of the great, um, one of the great um, uh, uh, breakthroughs of these mega churches in Seoul was to find places for everybody, to build an organizational structure that could absorb everyone. Yeah. And the temples, as I understand it, are having a real problem figuring out where to put the men. That as the women can go to the church, exactly as you're pointing out, your wife, they can go to the church and have a place and, and get involved. But the men apparently find it very hard to find organizational positions in the church. The lay Buddhists. Have you run into? Well, they're, they're not Bodhisattvas. <laughs> right, they're not. Right, exactly. That just becomes a, a, a yeah. some sort of a block to the yeah. membership model that the women go. I hadn't thought about that when I go to those temples. It's always the male abbot and all these women doing all the work. And the men feel quite marginalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think you're right there. And the, the schools, the Buddhist colleges, they offer women primarily. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. So I think it's interesting to think about what's lost in the Buddhist Buddhism looking like Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, um, because there's been such disappointment in the Christian church with all the sensationalized scandals, yes. whether that translates over into a critique of all religious organizations, including Buddhism, which is why you're getting uh, more of a religious apathy amongst the youth, that yeah. the critique against Christianity, because they're the ones that are in the news, right? and if, if Buddhism is looking like Christianity, or at least some form, then it, that, that critique becomes generalized. And that's why people are yeah. staying away, or I'm, younger people are staying away anyway. I'm not sure, when Joge did a survey last year to ask people what they thought of particular religious organizations, mm -hmm. the most respected was Catholicism. Mm -hmm. They haven't had the kind of scandals in Korea you see in North America. They were like 33%. Buddhism was next at about 22, 23%. Protestant Christianity was at 11%. All right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and you, I think what hurt Buddhism image are again the fights we've seen on television in Tokyo. <laughs> that doesn't help, you know. Um, and, and Protestant Christianity has been hurt by the financial corruption of the mega churches. And the Catholics so far have been above uh, scandals. Yeah, so they've been, they've been very fortunate in, in, in Korea. I have one question. In terms of where you started by saying that before a certain point, very few Koreans, before the Catholics came, very few Koreans thought of themselves belonging to a religion. Right. In this country, when we talk about people staying away from church, mm -hmm. no longer identifying with religion, spiritual but not religious, right. it's a kind of decline of religious yeah. culture. Is it possible in Korea to identify it as a return to the pre belonging to a religion, identity of being Korean, but you don't have to belong to something to be Korean and spiritual? I mean the fact that it's stagnated about 50%? Uh, yeah, that, right, and that if it's younger people are not identifying anymore, okay. is this reverting to the way it was in the 18th century, let's say? It, it could be. I think it's more, I think the, the, the rapid rise in the percentage of the population giving themselves a religious label is more to do with needing an anchor to hold on to in this rapid urbanization. And churches provide, and temples too, and so provide communities. When you move from your village, they knock on your door. You move into a new apartment building, they're knocking on your door to bring you to the church. Um, that's, that's all the temples. Um, now everybody's settled. You can't urbanize anymore. And so the young people have other ways of finding communities. Uh, that's what I think. I don't think they, I think the average Korean doesn't realize that their ancestors didn't have uh, you know, the notion of Pacific religious affiliation. I've looked at Charles Taylor's work, and he explains that the secularization of Western society is when people begin to ask, do I believe in God or not? Before that, everybody said, I do. In Korea, it's been the reverse. People didn't ask if they believed in a God or not, because nobody thought I believed in God. And then in the 20th century, it became, do I believe in God or not? And now, increasingly, about half the people are saying, maybe. Actually, Gallup finds a substantial percentage of Koreans who say they believe in a supreme deity, but aren't religious. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Uh, actually, this is just related to this. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the other 50% or a bit more. The 50% identify with a specific religion, but uh, as I think Professor Kuhn just mentioned, the other 50%, um, uh, based on my reading, there is actually evidence that it's not that they are unreligious. Right. They, they do have certain religious tendencies, but right. they simply do not identify with the specific, uh, I guess, um, organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And may maybe that is maybe closer yeah. to uh, the pre-modern uh, type of religiosity. Right. These people probably still go to shamans, they probably go to temples, but they don't belong to congregations. And that's why they don't call themselves religious. That's, that's, that's why they, they have not. And also the term religion in Korea still has connotations, a negative connotation of being for a, a, a part of society rather than all of society. When the Japanese brought the concept of religion to Korea, that was their definition. Religion by definition sectarian. So some Koreans feel that to join a religious organization, what you're doing is setting yourself apart from the rest of society. You don't need to do that. You can still go to the shaman, go to the temple, even go to churches and sit in, but don't join it. Because that's saying, I'm different from you, but I want to be part of the larger Korean community, so I'm not going to do that. The trend in Korea, mm. and especially youth group is concerned, is like here. Mm. It seems to me more people will say they are spiritual, hungry for yeah. spirituality, yeah. not necessarily religion, right. specifically point to specific organized yeah. religion. Yeah. I haven't seen that, that kind of phrasing in Korea. I haven't seen that. 
I mean, my book is titled Korean Spirituality, and in Korean it came out as Hangul Gina Jungsung, but I never see that in, in Korean. <laughs> I never see Koreans saying that about themselves. Uh, they just say, you know, I'm just, I'm Korean, you know. Uh, there was a New Age movement for a while, um, which was quite interesting. The New Age movement fairs in Korea would teach Buddhist meditation from Japan as a New Age movement for Korea. Is that Mount That's new. That's, that's, yeah, Mount one, yeah. That's, 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 that's not related to Japan at all. But I mean, earlier they actually were teaching Japanese Zen at these New Age fairs in the 1990s. You didn't, you didn't mention the Unification Church at all, Reverend Moon. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, they're not, they're, now they say they're not Christian. They, okay. they, they, they're now there for everybody. Uh, Are they still flourishing? I wouldn't say flourishing. In fact, the, uh, the problem they're having is the battle, we say the battle of the princess, since Reverend Moon died, he gave his church, responsibility for his church to one son and responsibility for his businesses to the other son, telling the other son, use your profits to subsidize the church. And the other son said, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so the battle of the princess, the Korean press <laughs> calls it. Well, on that happy note, I think we should call it a session.